grace and mercy and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, some of you may have already made the connection there. I stole a line from a Christmas hymn as the title for this morning's sermon. Let every heart prepare him room. If you didn't already see that connection to the seasonal favorite, it's probably just beginning to make that connection now. Here's the following line to help you out. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. So you all know the hymn by now. We sing out about joy. That is joy to the world. It may be a little prematurely because we're still in Advent, but you'll see how it fits in. The next line is not Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Forget about that one. And uh, I'm not sure if that's even referring to the Bible's Jeremiah. But back to the Christmas hymn. We have some seasonal sticklers among us, and I'm very grateful for that, genuinely speaking, because in their patience, which I sometimes lack, they are very helpful and careful to not mix the green beans with the mashed potatoes, if you know what I'm saying. And by that, this is what I'm saying. They're careful to keep the appropriate trappings of one church season, Advent, separate and distinct from another church season, Christmas. So I know they don't do that uh, at Walmart, not a bit, because as soon as Halloween is over and they got all their Halloween items on sale, you're hearing Christmas music piped all the way through the store. But with their friendly help, we are, we and our uh, seasonal sticklers, um, they help us figure out the nuances, the distinctions between seasons. So an Advent hymn, for example, would be what we sing today. And I love singing it every year. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Since Advent, of course, is about the one who is coming, but not here yet. And the one at Christmas, we do sing. Uh, it's about the one who has come. We sing along with the heralding angels, glory to the newborn king. But it's not just that you hear certain things distinct to one season or another. You also get to see that uh, things that help delineate one church season from another witness, the timekeeping uh, advent wreath. Vigilantly on duty, telling us that we're getting closer and closer. You know, it's the two candles lit now. And for the baptism, the Christ candle. That's for the baptism, not Advent. That'll be lit again on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. So we're not going to jump the gun with a full blast of light coming from our Christmas tree here until the Christ, the light of the world, gets here, liturgically speaking, of course. So let's just keep those green beans away from the mashed potatoes, all right? Um, when you get the casserole, you'll have a nice mix of things today there. And everything will just be fine. Now, just between you and me, if you can't wait like myself, down in the fellowship hall, we will light up that Christmas tree. Um, that's, that seems to be our compromise this year. And by the way, elders, thank you for both Christmas trees being so nicely uh, decorated down there in the fellowship hall and up here. Great job as always. Back to the title of this sermon for one more point, though. The title is a line from a Christmas hymn, but the author himself I'm talking about Isaac Watts. He had no intention of it becoming a Christian hymn. In fact, he wasn't even necessarily going to make any kind of song of it at all. He first simply made a poem 
of Psalm 98. And he had a lot of poems. Later, he'd go back and turn them into hymns sometimes. But this was not at first one of them anyway. And if there were any assigned theme or season attached to this poem, it would have been the end times when the Lord returns, Christ the King, those types of themes uh, concerning the second advent, not so much the first advent or Christmas. Here's a verse from Psalm 98 to get a little feel for it. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. That's verse 9 there from Psalm 98. So you can see some of the overtones about end of the world and judging the world. But we're learning, aren't we, as part of God's church on earth still, uh, the church militant, as we're still fighting the good fight in these bodies that he gave us, uh, we're called to do just that, uh, prepare for the Lord's second coming at the end of the age, which, of course, historically, we're waiting to happen. We are to pray, watch, stay sober-minded, and we're to help others prepare also for the return of the king by getting the gospel proclamation out there and by inviting fellow sinners to repent. Hey, come with me to church and confess all your sins with me. And the best part, be absolved, absolutely forgiven for all of them at church as well. What a nice invitation. That's where John the Baptist comes in. His calling was specifically to prepare people for the one who comes after him. Let every heart prepare room for this one who is so much greater than himself. And John puts it this way. After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not even worthy to stoop down and untie, which was a gesture made by the lowest slave. I have baptized you with water, John continues, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Prepare room for him. Now, please notice here how good and careful John the Baptist himself is being about making these fine distinctions. He keeps his ministry and his Lord's ministry separate. Separate, but related. They're related in this particular way. John's call to God's people was a call to have them repent. Verse 4 from our gospel passage. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That was his cry. And in this way, John's ministry was preparatory and therefore temporary uh, in terms of its ministry. And it was designed as such from the very beginning. It was built into it was a fade out when the Lord comes upon the scene, or as John would elsewhere say it like this, he must increase, but I must decrease. John's properly understood role then before the Lord was not too different from the church's role today to be witnesses to the Lord. We are asked to draw attention not to ourselves, but rather to point people to the mighty and yet meek, tender Lord and God. Jesus, the long-expected Christ, or as Mark, the gospel writer, wastes no time in getting around to this Jesus who is declared from the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Mark understands that Jesus is both 
meek, and mighty. And that's how the Son of God reveals himself. He knows that the prophet Isaiah has written about Jesus centuries ago. And we read it earlier from our Old Testament reading. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. As well, Mark being uh, one whom Peter calls his son in the faith, Mark is therefore very familiar with what Peter knew and what Peter proclaimed concerning Jesus. And now quoting from our second reading today, Second Peter, Peter reminds us the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and all the, its works that are done in it will be exposed. That's our heavy-duty reading from um, verse 10 there in our epistle lesson. This is who Mark is going to present then as the Son of God. And by prophecy and miracle, Mark's going to prove it. He's not going to beat around the bush. Mark's byword in his gospel will be the word immediately. Jesus commanded the Spirit to come out of her, and immediately the Spirit left. And Jesus stepped in the boat. And he rebuked the winds and the waves, and immediately the storm ceased. Mark is going to move quickly like this through his, the shortest of the four Gospels, and he'll get to the other end of his Gospel with another bookended quote to um, refer or echo back to the beginning of his Gospel. But this time the quote is coming from the lips of a Roman centurion standing right there next to the cross of Christ, when Jesus breathes his last, says the soldier, truly, this man was the son of God. Mark ends his gospel then in the same way he begins his gospel. And through it all, with a little help from the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, also inspired 40 plus other writers of all the books of the Bible by the Holy Spirit, Mark manages also to capture the full spectrum of Jesus in action, both as mighty and as meek. After all, the Holy Spirit centuries earlier inspired Isaiah along those very same lines, showing both sides of the Lord who is to come. The one who is mighty and rules will also tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young, mighty and meek. Likewise, Mark as informed by Peter's eyewitness accounts, will include in his gospel as well this tender side of Jesus that Peter recalls. I'm talking about such times as when Jesus rebuked Peter and the other disciples for keeping the children away, as we cited in our baptismal uh, liturgy. Let the little children come to me and don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Yes, that was Peter being rebuked right there in what Jesus said, amongst the other disciples who were, of course, included in that rebuke. Peter doesn't withhold his most embarrassing moments as he shares them, even shameful moments like his denial, when it comes to the New Testament writers putting together the most accurate record of their foibles and struggles. And we are glad for it, aren't we? As far as creating an accurate record of ancient history goes, this sort of warts and all approach that the Old and New Testament writers took, well, in ancient writings, that's quite rare. And it's largely 
another important distinctive of the biblical record as compared to other ancient records from the same time period. If you were appointed to serve, say, as the official imperial historian for the annals of Rome under Nero, say, you would literally be executed for including any such transparent or vulnerable fact about the sayings or doings of the emperor if such facts were the least bit unflattering to the emperor. That's why for the sake of some some kind of accuracy with historical facts, those historians back then, Tacitus, Suetonius, and a few other names you'd only know if you're a history major, they only wrote about the previous emperor, not the current one. So that way they kept their lives. So regarding the New Testament writers, I believe it was just as Peter said, uh, know this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how Peter describes the process, and he was one of those that wrote the word of God. He also speaks about Paul's writings as equally inspired, equally the word of God. So it's that Holy Spirit ingredient there that sets sacred scripture apart from all other kinds of writings. It brings the scriptures alive. And it's also the Holy Spirit ingredient that John the Baptist himself cites now as a distinction between his baptism of repentance with water versus the baptism of Christ coming after him, whom he said will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Since John the Baptist brings it up in today's gospel reading, and while we're still basking in the excitement about this morning's baptism, I'd like to share this rare occasion to say a little bit more about the new baptismal font here, since uh, we've put put it to good use for its first time. And uh, it goes right along with all these other wonderful refurbishings that are historically um, included now in um, what we we give to the future generations here at Peace Lutheran. So in closing, I'm going to come down there, unusual as it might be, but I saw Wednesday's recording of the Advent service. For those of you who are here, and Pastor Paul Koch came right down the aisle to preach his whole sermon. So I know... Uh, Last year, you were a little startled about that. Is he going to pinpoint my sins or sit on my lap or something? Um, but this year, I think you're ready for it. And I just want to tell you a couple things of neat design modifications that are pregnant with spiritual meaning. And of course, during this time of Advent season, it just might be more appropriate than other times to talk about some pregnancies. Certainly, Mary and her cousin Elizabeth did. So let me come down here and tell you a couple things about this that I was quite excited about. Special thanks to Phil, who oversaw this project. And um, we have a base, and the base has six sides. And those six sides remind you of man. Man was created on the sixth day. But it also reminds you of fallen man. If you follow that number all the way to the book of Revelation, right? We're familiar with the six, six, six. And it just goes on, one of those repeating numbers. And it's man's attempt on his own to be righteous, acceptable before God. But he never gets there. He never gets to the perfect seven. So um, six, then, is a 
sinner who comes forward for baptism. I kind of like that. All right. Uh, here's Peter from his, his sermon on Pentecost. Peter says to them, And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you see how the Spirit and the water are connected in Christian baptism that Jesus gives in that Great Commission. And it also is the promise for you and for your children, Peter says, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Okay, so that's the six down there, right? Now you look up on top, I don't know if anybody counted yet, but there are eight sides now. Why are there eight sides? Well, uh, the other question is, how do you get from six, that imperfect number, to eight, a number of, as we shall see shortly, new beginnings? Um, how do you get there? Well, you got to go through seven. That's the baptism, and that's the perfect righteousness, the perfect number uh, of God, a heavenly number, and you get there through your uniting with Jesus Christ. And here's Paul on that. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So there we are, uh, a new creation. Newness of life. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.21 talks about that. If anyone is in Christ, guess what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the baptismal candidate, uh, starting out at the 6th, is joined together with Christ in both his death and his resurrection. And that's this perfection of 7 that leads you up here to the 8th, though. The 8th day is when the Jews typically circumcised the infant males. And the number eight also stands for a new beginning. Um, and in that number eight, we also see a hearkening back, and Peter's going to get a good word on, it, on that. Peter says, they formerly did not obey God when God's patience waited back in the days of Noah when everybody did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And then Noah according to God's commandment, was preparing the ark, in which a few, I guess that's the eight, um, were brought safely through the water. And Peter says right there, baptism, which corresponds to this time with the eight people on the ark and the flood of the water, uh, baptism now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know our sins are forgiven because that price that Christ paid on the cross for all of our sins is vindicated, is validated by God the Father, raising Jesus from the dead. And thus, we are not only joined with Christ in his perfect righteousness, the seven, but that new day that we're looking forward to when Christ comes back and the elements are destroyed, like we just read from Peter, and it's a new heaven and a new earth, and we're part of that as well. So that's the new creation with the eight sides. I thought that was really nice. And to uh, top it all off, I would like to read one more quote. It was from one of our confirmands, 
But I remember her speech, and it was on baptism. And what she said was, you might think the pastor's going crazy when you're over here getting baptized, and he's going to drown you or something. But really, he's going to speak some good words. And those words are the Lord's words himself, straight from Scripture. And so what does baptism mean? Baptism means that all of heaven is open to you, all the gifts of heaven rain down upon you, and you will live forever in the joy of the Lord. I'll leave it at that. But I do ask you right now to pray with me uh, in dedicating this font for all its future use. Who knows how much longer we will be here, but this item right here goes way back and hopefully it will continue on. It's built, I don't know if everybody knows this, from one of the hymns, or excuse me, one of the um, pews from the choir section. That's where we got the wood for this. And those um, pews back there, they go all the way back to 1967, where they were purchased from another church to be brought here to when we were Faith Lutheran Church. How do you like that? So they're 50-plus years old uh, that we know of. And if anybody knows where they were before coming here to Faith Lutheran, uh, let us know, because they could be 100 years old, and that's part of the history here. Um, it reminds me of the generations we have right over here. Four generations uh, that end up where Charlotte is in her uh, her age, and Emma, Davis's daughter. Um, four generations, that's nice. And that's kind of like this baptismal font, and we pray that it will be used by God mightily, meekly both, uh, in many years to come. Let's pray, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the power in it, uh, so that when it is combined with the water of baptism, it confers forgiveness of sins and new life in Christ, salvation that we yearn for for so many centuries. It has come in the per person of your son, Jesus Christ, and in the work he accomplished on the cross, the work of atonement, so that all our sins are paid for, buried, forgotten, as far as the east is from the west. Use this baptismal font to convey that truth of your glorious word to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.